What's with this band anyway? I don't get it, can you please explain? Wait, like bands playing? Welcome to Bandsplain. I am your host, Yossi Salik. This is a show where talented journalists come on to explain cult bands and iconic artists to me and to you. Today's episode is about Dire Straits. If you've never heard Dire Straits, I assume you have never been inside of, say, a Kroger supermarket. Here is what Dire Straits sounds like. My guest today is Sam Sadomsky. He is an associate editor at Pitchfork and the host of the Late Era podcast, where he delves into the later era albums of mainly boomer-ass rock bands. So even though he is <laughs> arguably in his 20s, he is somehow the perfect person to come on here on Bands Plane and explain Dire Straits to us. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And also, arguably in my 20s is a really accurate portrayal of who I am. So thank you for that. You're like producer Dylan, <laughs> who is also arguably in her 20s, but she's a full ass boomer dad. Oh, yeah. I definitely relate to that energy. Okay. Not me. Permatin. <laughs> um, let's, let's fucking get into this. Let's, let's crack open some Dire Straits, baby. Yeah, I'm excited. I've got a beer here. I'm ready to talk Dire Straits. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, dude, your shirt is unbuttoned. Four buttons. You have your beer. Exactly. You're like full uh-huh. like <laughs> method right now to like get into this. Okay. Yeah, I I don't think I'd be able to do it otherwise. So, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> tell me who Dire Straits is. Well, if we're talking Dire Straits, I think we're going to be mostly talking about Mark Knopfler. He's sort of the figurehead of this band. Um, He's one of two members who I believe is on every album, the other being bassist John Ilsey, who's a great musician, a really identifiable sound. But yeah, if we're talking about Dire Straits, they're one of those bands where there's this really distinctive sound that they're known for. And it kind of, for a little bit, sort of took over and became... Uh, just a permanent fixture in rock music and on the radio. And yeah, that's sort of what they're remembered by. And when did they start Dire Straitsing and where? Yeah, it's a really brief run, actually. Um, Pretty much all of the music that they're now remembered for happens between October 1978 and May 1985. That's when you have their first five records. And there's one after that in the 90s that's significantly less acclaimed or popular. Um, as or good. is the case with a lot Would of bands. Would you say significantly well, yeah. less good? <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. Um, okay. That's because that's, you know, arguable. But, um, but yeah, it's a pretty solid run of albums. And something I always admire about a band like Dire Straits is there really is no late era other than that one album. It, they kind of started, did their thing, had their breakthrough, and then ended before things could get too sour. So 
The band starts in 1977. They come out of the scene that's always been sort of confusing to me as an American listener born decades later, but it's called pub rock. Mm -hmm. And my interpretation of it is kind of like in the UK, as a lot of the first classic rock bands got kind of too big for their britches, you know, started playing in expensive places and ticket prices were going up. This was a scene that sort of emerged for like the working class that was kind of like, this is the next generation. It was sort of obsessed with authenticity and really based on American roots music. And the way I understand punk kind of happened and totally made it all look really square. (laughs) Um, And a lot of the people who were in that scene switched really quickly to being sort of punk influenced artists, Elvis Costello being one of them. So Dire Straits comes from that scene because Mark Knopfler is a guitarist who's really into American music, especially like Nashville kind of sound, like Chet Atkins. He's born in Glasgow, grows up in England. Um, During college, he works as a journalist and he gets deep into like country blues, starts writing songs. After he graduates, he plays in this band with a name that is Brewer's Droop. Sorry? Uh, Brewer's Droop. Mm, Rolls off the tongue. Gorgeous. (laughs) Definitely sounds contagious. Yeah, Um, there's a cream for that, I think. (laughs) Yeah, and that's kind of where he develops the style of guitar playing he's known for, which is this finger-picking style on a really clean-sounding electric guitar. Uh, It's this really deliberate-sounding pluck. Like, I think when you hear the sound of his guitar playing, you know the sound of his guitar playing. He's like one of those types of people. And Dire Straits starts when his brother David Knopfler moves to London and they start, you know, playing music together, playing some of the songs he wrote. And from there, it's pretty constant. They put out a ton of, you know, like an album a year type thing. uh, Mark Knopfler becomes a really in-demand studio session musician. You can hear him on a ton of stuff from that era. Okay, so Mark Knopfler, who is playing fancy guitar in the pubs with his brother, um, was that pub scene, like, are there other bands that you can just, like, situate us with that, like, came out of that too? Like, was there some sort of, like, um, scene within which, like, labels were, you know, crawling the pubs, getting their fish and chips and signing bands. There wasn't like a collective scene where it was like, we pick this band because they're the best live act or we pick this band because, you know, they seem like the most uh, capable for a crossover. I feel like it was more, this scene started, the sense I get is that a lot of those bands sort of in the studio kind of fell apart without the energy of the audience. Mm. And a really big part of their appeal was this pristine sound of their music, which to me is is antithetical with what that whole thing was about. Like by the 80s, their band that's all in on technology and going digital and music videos. Um, So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I associate them with like a live scene. They were plucked out of so much as there was this sort of energy in the air and that was what they materialized out of. There's something in the air tonight. Oh, Lord. Okay, so mysteriously, we don't know how uh, Dire Straits gets signed. And (laughs) 
they, <laughs> well, I guess they had a demo, right? I would assume they had like a little, yes. a, little a Wii demo. Um, according to my research notes here, the demo already contained uh, Sultans of Swing uh, and Water sure. of Love and Down to the Waterline, which are uh, three of their biggest songs, correct? Yes. And I think I'll make it to the first record. Um, tell me about the first record. I just want to say one thing is that a glorious yeah. gift that producer Dylan has given me is telling me that um, it was produced by someone named Muff Winwood. And I just am enjoying the chance to say produced by Muff Winwood, brother of Steve. Yeah, Winwood. related. Yeah, related to Steve Winwood, Steve and Muff. Great, um, great. Uh, name a more iconic duo, if you will. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, so that debut album, I would say, is like one of three really essential statements Dire Straits makes, and it's a huge introduction. Um, I also think it's like one of my favorite album covers ever. I don't know why, but it's so evocative to me. It's like a, like an Edward Hopper painting or something. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah, it's just like a nice mood. I don't know why it always looks like it's like on, like, I don't know, it's like a seaside thing going on. It's like in Blur. But yeah, it's a pretty much hit the ground running success. It has Sultans of Swing, which is a huge hit. Um, it's this really, uh, such a complete sound. You know, I feel like a lot of bands, it takes multiple albums to get to the point where you listen to them and you know that it's like, you know, it's like someone different. Um, to the extent that Bob Dylan hears Sultan of Swing and he wants Mark Knopfler to play on his new record. And that happens, I think, like right around the same time he plays on Slow Train Coming. Wow. Um, well why don't we why don't we hear Sultans of Swing since we are talking about its glory and it is a good place to get people situated into Dire Straits. Yeah. Okay. This is Sultans of Swing off the first Dire Straits album. With Okay, that was Sultans of Swing by Dire Straits. I have several questions. Yeah, yeah. One is, <laughs> is this song kind of about nothing? It seems like it's like <laughs> a little bit talking about the weather. And then yeah. we get into like, we're literally talking about playing music, double four time. You know, you feel all sure. right when you hear the music ring. Um you step inside, you don't see too many faces. Okay, we're in the pub, I guess, um, in London. What is this song about? Is this song literally, is it about anything? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question because it's something that I think about with Dire Straits all the time is what is Mark Knopfler talking about? Um, <laughs> Sir, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I do think like, okay, I mean, there's obviously like a Dylan thing going on with how he sings and the way he presents himself as this kind of storyteller, like the, you know, the rambling thing. Gone to the finest school, all right, Miss Lonely, but you know you only used to get juiced in it. A lot of his songs, there's this sort of seedy element, which I think we'll get to more as we go along, but the sort mm -hmm. of like, he's always singing about like ladies of the night and like, <laughs> like there's like, you know what I, like, uh -huh. I don't know if you listen, there's, just that element to it, which persists to this day in his solo stuff. But yeah, I think a lot of Dire Straits lyrics are kind of scene setting. You know, it's not necessarily, he's not introducing you to characters he wants you to, to understand. He's not necessarily telling you a story. You know, it's more like 
this is the way people talk in this room. This is the things they might see. Right. You know, which leads to trouble down the line when he's singing about characters who, you know, like are using maybe offensive language that he himself wouldn't use, like, which we'll get to with money for nothing. Mm. But yeah, I think um, a little foreshadowing. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what I like about the cover too, where it's like, you don't necessarily see a face. You don't necessarily know what's happening. But the idea is to kind of like whisk you away there, which is something I love about another song on this album called Wild West End, which I think if we did line by line like you were doing with Sultans of Swing, it probably wouldn't fare very well. But when he's singing it, it feels kind of magical to me. All right. You know what? It's a vibe, as the kids say. It sounds like mm-hmm. that's what we're, that's what he's going for, a vibe. Let's let's hear Wild West End. That was Wild West End. I had never heard that song. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I didn't hear it until way later too. And I remember thinking, like, this sounds like it should have been one of their hits, and I was kind of surprised it wasn't. It's very charming. And like you were saying off uh, recording that like you really enjoyed the sort of like very verite moment where he like laughs while delivering like a lyric. And like there was like a lot of spareness that I like kind of was unexpected that I really enjoyed. I'm really unfamiliar with this band, like past like the four mega hits that like we said you hear at the Kroger grocery store. Like so like I truly am learning in real time. But like I guess from what you've described and from the little research I did before, someone who's like ostensibly a guitar virtuoso, like I guess I wouldn't expect this kind of songwriting where it's like really honoring things like open space and stuff like that, you know, because like I feel like you think of like Joe Satriani, like whatever, like whoever I think of when I think of like the guitar virtuoso. And I don't really associate that with like this kind of songwriting. So I'm a little bit pleasantly surprised. I also wanted to ask you, um, is this like cosplay? Is this like sort of like British guy, like Americana cosplay? Like, cause it it's even the like singing affectation, like sounds yeah. a little like he's like being a bit of like a, I'm a cowboy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's definitely that aspect to it. Like, I definitely, I remember being kind of surprised when I found out he's not American. Right. Yeah, there's certain things that I think are like more British about them. Like, uh, like some of the, there's like this kind of like sneering satirical thing that he starts mm. doing more as they progress. I think that there's a lot of elements from different corners of what was happening in rock music that make it the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, like you're saying, he's a guitar virtuoso, but it's not music you listen to and you're like, he's not like trying to dazzle you or impress you. And it's like really expensive music mostly, but it doesn't sound like pop music really. There's a lot of ingredients to it that make it so palatable and so pleasant you know so when you're really closely listening to even the hits you're talking about i think you know they're the kind of band where it's like do you know anyone who this is like their favorite band yes producer dylan (laughs) yeah that sounds a good example i just feel like there's people who dire straits becomes the one band they listen to yeah. Oh, yes. I do know one other person, my uncle, my Iranian uncle who lived in Norway. And for whatever reason, I think Dire Straits was massive in Norway and they were his favorite band of all time. Yeah. I mean, there you go. I, that's like, I think what's always been fascinating to me about them was 
this fandom where it's like they heard this music and were like, that's all I need. Like my dad had a friend like that. And that was the first person I knew who Dire Straits was their favorite band. You know, it's like everything comes back to them. And I saw Mark Knopfler live in like 2019 and the audience went nuts. Like when he played stuff from making movies, it was like every word people were screaming along with, you know, they like treated it like it was like it was Madonna or something. It was really fun to be a part of. Did you get a sense of how old these people were? They were definitely older than me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they were boomers. No, only because yeah, like, sure. okay, it's a little early for this theory, but I think we'll see how it plays yeah. out. I have like a small kernel of a theory forming where it's like the 80s were really such like a blessed time, <laughs> you know, like the economy was amazing. Like everything was good, even though it was like slightly insane in, in a lot of ways. And especially boomers, I think, think of it that way. Especially like white boomers like well yeah, especially people. white boomers yeah. of course i'm specifically talking right. about white boomers and they yeah. they probably connect that spiritually with this band also because this band was like one of the biggest bands of the 80s and so it's sure. like maybe all wrapped up in like their own nostalgia for a time that was like in their experience in the white boomer experience like just bountiful and uncomplicated you know <laughs> yeah i mean it's for sure music of bounty like when you get to like Brothers in Arms, it's like the kind of record you can just put on. And if you close your eyes, like every part of your brain will be massaged. Like it is so, <laughs> it's just like the most luxurious sounding shit you've ever heard. But I also think that like, I do think that music like that got a really bad rap. Like, you know, like in the night, like after sure. it became uncool to make your music sound like that, I think people went really hard in on bands like Dire Straits. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, so you get like this kind of reactionary, like people who hate Dire Straits or hate Steely Dan or hate Sade. Nobody hates Sade. <laughs> it took a while for her to get the critical treatment she deserved. And I think it's because a lot of music from the 80s that sounded, you know, soft or content or leaning on the side of like adult contemporary, you know, it's like, stuff like Nirvana happened and grunge and it made a lot of that music sound, you know, like lame or, you know, like passe. I That's just want to point out, I'm, I'm grinning like an idiot only because I want to point out to the greater listening audience and also specifically producer Dylan that I did not bring up Nirvana first in this episode. So the guest oh, I'm did. sorry. <laughs> no, it's like fine. Uh -huh. um, no, it's simply a running joke around here. But also, um, I was born in 1982, so, like, my entire, everything I understand about music is literally, like, hinged on Nevermind coming out. It's, like, before uh -huh. or after Never. Like, it's how I orient myself. It's my compass. So I bring it up all the time. But this time you brought it up. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's back up from Nirvana. Yeah. We'll get there. Um, we've speculated into the future of why people like this. But why did people like this when it came out? Like, what about this was appealing to people that they were like, fuck yes, I love this. Because it blew up. Like, it wasn't just like, yeah. yeah, this is pleasant. We like it. It was like, this is the biggest. Sultans of Swing was like a massive song. Yeah, it's huge. The sound of it was really well thought out and different. So a lot of new bands came out in 77. We were one of them. There's loads of bands and they're all different to each other. It fit into what was happening in rock music. And it sounds a little like Bruce Springsteen in the kind of like working class rock setting. Gives him life. 
sounds a little like Pink Floyd in the fact that it's elaborately produced and it would sound great on like a stereo hi-fi. It sounds a little like Steely Dan. It's got this laid back groove to it. You know, I think it sounds familiar, but it sounded new to the extent that, you know, Bob Dylan could see it live and be like, I need that guitarist on my record because that's like the sound of the future. You know, I think they found an audience with people who were, you know, who rock music was sort of aging. You know, this is the late 70s and it sounded new and it sounded familiar and it sounded pleasant. They had a good live show. They had great sounding records. I think all of those things at the time really worked in their favor. Right. I was reading um, the Rolling Stone review of that first album and it's funny. It's like he wasn't interested in writing songs with profound messages. Like he just writes these like terse little narratives about the mundane problems of his brethren. Women trouble, money trouble, one's place in the world trouble. That reminds me a lot of Steely Dan as well. And also when you said and I guess we haven't gotten there, but we can talk about it more when we get there, like writing about uh, women of ill repute or whatever. Like <laughs> This also reminds me of Steely Dan, where I'm like, there was yeah. a lot of like, how do I say, like griminess or like cuttiness that like, I'm like, did you actually experience this or are you simply like imagining what it might be like to experience this? Yeah, I, I think like, the magic of Steely Dan or the thing that makes Steely Dan click for people is when you realize that like the fancy sounding music is supposed to be almost sarcastic. It's like right. the fantasy music in the heads of these people who are living really um, sort of like lives of debauchery or like, you know, going through dark stuff. And I don't think Dire Straits has that much dissonance in their music. I sort of think it's almost like hangover party music vibes recounting something that happened maybe a long time ago but there totally is that feeling of a darkness to it or of if he was you know later I think it becomes a lot more he thinks a lot more about his lyrics but for now it is a sort of tossed off feeling where he laughs in the middle of tracks or he's playing a rock song while singing about a rock band it is this very um natural sounding music i love the idea that like at the same time that this was happening where they were like shh just lay back (laughs) relax there was also the rise of punk was like getting big new wave was getting big it's just like so interesting to me thinking about how many different types of rock music were like flourishing and thriving at the same time like within the same world and i guess that's sort of that's actually probably a really good representation of the different experiences that so many different people were probably having in the 80s, you know, and like what they gravitated towards. Like we said, like white boomers love dire straits because they were having one specific kind of experience, but there was all kinds of other experiences happening. And maybe they were yeah. like, we don't want this. Like we're pissed. Yeah, we I want mean, we want punk, you know? Exactly. I'm sure those people <laughs> fucking hated dire straits, you know, or like saw this as like the op like what they were fighting and rebelling against, which, you know, more power to you. You know, I like, <laughs> like, as someone who now can be really into like The Cure and Bruce Hornsby, I definitely like wonder all the time what I would have liked if I was around back then, if I would have been a total square, if I would have <laughs> like gone to bat for the stuff I think is cool now. I really don't know. 
Robert Smith would be so bummed to hear you say that you also love Bruce Hornsby. He was like, please don't use my <laughs> name in the same sentence as. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, okay, so <laughs> Dire Straits self-title comes out. I, I have to imagine nobody expected it to be that popular. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, probably not. I think a lot of the press at the time was like, meet Dire Straits, the normal guys who had a hit record. Like, that's really kind of their gimmick is that they don't have a gimmick and they're like mild-mannered British dudes, you know, <laughs> as like brothers and stuff. The music industry is, there's so much excess at the time that like records were hits, you know, all the time. So, and like rock bands came and went so quickly. Right. I think what's probably more impressive is that they were having hit records a decade later, right. you know, than the fact that they struck gold on their first one. But okay. yeah, it definitely is huge. And it's like the shortness of their career is always really impressive to me. The fact that things happened so quickly and they were evolving so fast. And like, you know, within a few years, Mark Knopfler's like writing hits for Tina Turner and, you know, stuff like that is kind of like... Private Dancer. Right. Yeah. Okay. So... We're here. We have hits. People are simply marveling at how um, average we are as people <laughs> and um, average looking, uh, av yeah. average background. Um, I did watch a Norwegian interview with them from 1979, and they were so impossible to interview. I was like, wow, you haven't even, did you just first album already? And they were like, yeah, we are tired of answering all the same questions, actually. Like, what are we supposed to do? Just like make stuff up? And it's like, I don't know, you could be interesting. Yeah, well, how would you like to be, how would you like to be asked the same questions all the time? It's a, it's yeah, a, you are. You know, you, you end up saying the same things all the time or making things up. That's okay. Go off, Kings. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is, that, I mean, that's like worth noting that I'm sure this is not going to be the easiest episode to produce because there's no like, controversy there's no like moment when it all blows up and they're like in a hotel room when the cops bust in you know it's like no but i'm fascinated by this because and all we can sort of liken it to a different band who's had a way longer career but also has been really massive which is rem everybody hurts right as far as i can discern and i've been around for a lot of rem's career like there's no mythology really around R.E.M., you know, except that, like, they're a really good band and they wrote right. really good albums and people love to go watch them play and they influenced a bunch of other bands. Yeah. Okay, so the second Dire Straits album comes out pretty soon after the first one? Yeah, I think it comes out the next year. Okay. And it kind of sounds like it. Um, I think it's probably up until that record from the 90s, the, their worst album. Uh I feel like one way to talk about their catalog is they sort of move in like stagger steps where their mm -hmm. first album is amazing, their third album is amazing, and then their fifth album is a huge breakthrough. So it's like they have these sort of transitional moments that are good and that have, you know, they move them forward. But I don't think um, Communique is anyone's favorite Dire Straits album. And apologies if it is. Yours. Yeah, you can you can go ahead and DM me because I know you're going to anyways. Um, or I noticed on your playlist you do not have any songs from Communicate. Would you like to just skip right over that one? Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't. There's like that song "Once Upon a Time in the West" that is like kind of big. Yeah, 
I don't think it's a particularly great song. So we are, I guess, now at Making Movies, which came out one year after Communicate. Is that right? Yeah, next year. By the time Making Movies comes out, they had already been nominated for Grammys and stuff. Yeah, they're pretty big at this point. They've definitely got a way bigger platform than I think they've ever had as a band. So they sort of level up. Um, They get uh, Jimmy Iovine to work on it, who um, is someone I associate at that time with Springsteen. He did work on uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is like one of my favorite albums ever. It's one of the best sounding albums Mm -hmm. ever. And uh, Roy Bitten, the uh, piano player from Springsteen's band, joins Dire Straits for the recording sessions, which is why it has that really sort of uh, like fantasy romantic sound that I associate with Springsteen. And this was the first Dire Straits album I ever heard. This was like a favorite album of my mom's. And so it was playing a lot in the house. So it's like a favorite of mine. You're vibing. I hear that. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that they chose Jimmy Iovine specifically out of like a reverence for Bruce Springsteen and like the sound that they knew Jimmy Iovine produced? Yeah, I think the legend is they liked um, the Patti Smith song Because the Night, which was written by Springsteen, half written by Springsteen, completed by Patti Smith, produced by Jimmy Iovine during the Darkness sessions. It was one of the songs that was like abandoned during those insanely long, arduous recording sessions and became, you know, her signature song. It's a great sounding song, partially because of her vocal performance. And also it's just, there's so much energy to the music and the recording. Um, so yeah, I've, I've heard that's what was kind of Jimmy Iovine's calling card at the time. Wow. Hot take. I love the 10,000 Maniacs version the best. Because the night belongs to lovers. Because the night belongs to us. That's Don't great too. come into my DMs. Um, okay, so that makes <laughs> sense. Um, that makes them a little cooler in my eyes. They liked the energy of this very like powerful song. Um, and they were seeking, I guess, to harness some of that for themselves. Um, I do see here in my notes that the brothers start fighting during the recording of this album. Do you have any insight into what they were fighting about? I don't. I wish I did. (laughs) Um, It's probably a lot less exciting than anything we could dream about. Maybe we can just like I don't know. Invent your own mythology. Yeah, it does. It does seem like it'd be one of those things like you ate all the cheese cubes. You always eat all the cheese cubes that they bring (laughs) in the tray. This is you've done this forever. You don't respect me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just pure speculation. Um, Yeah. Well, regardless of what they were fighting about or how interesting it was, do you get the sense that you can hear any of that strife in the actual album? Because, you know, like, with a lot of other bands, when people are about to break up or there's like crisis or chaos, like it fully comes out in the album. But do you feel like that happens here? I haven't even heard it yet and I'm going to guess no. <laughs> yeah, not at all. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> yeah. not. This is not Dire Straits' Tusk. Right. <laughs> it's If anything, it's like their most like romantic, beautiful album. Like I, that's the thing that when I think about making movies, I think about how... Um, 
like melodic it is and how musically intricate and almost delicate it is. Like it really is to me, I would say if Dire Straits is their breakthrough, you know, it's like their introduction and Brother in Arms is like their huge thriller hit. This is kind of like their musical masterpiece, in my opinion. It's probably the album I would recommend to people who are sick of the radio singles or like don't want that 80s sound to hear like what's great about Dire Straits. Like your friend Yossi Salak here on Bandspan. Um, why don't we hear a song? I'm Now I'm chomping at the bit to hear um, what you really... It's almost like you're a music writer, what you just described. Um, which song do you want to hear first off of Making Movies? I guess we can go with Romeo and Juliet because that's the one when I saw him play live, the audience, like people in the audience were like hugging each other and like it was such a moment. This is my favorite and maybe only beloved Dire Straits song that I know. And I I have no literal understanding of how I found this song or why I know it. And I've known it for a long time, like since I was like a probably like a teenager. I used to like keep and maintain an ongoing um, Sad Songs 100 playlist except it wasn't a playlist because that didn't exist yet. It was simply a document in which I would write them down. And this song was always on there year after year. Top 100 wow. sad songs playlist. It's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, let's hear Romeo and Juliet. Juliet, the dice was loaded from the start. And I bet. That was... Romeo and Juliet, a goddamn gorgeous, glorious, beautiful song if I've ever heard one. What do you love about that song in particular? It's like the use of negative space. Because that's something I love in like a lot of music where it's like giving a beat for like a thing to land, like a, a lurch in your heart waiting for a thing. And then when it lands, it's just really like, ugh, you know, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that song is like, a masterpiece of phrasing and of just like there's something so like percussive about the way he delivers the verses where it's like the line like hey hey my boyfriend's back totally like, it's almost like he's like singing on top of uh, the song yeah you can hear it it's in quotes you know <laughs> like somehow you yeah can exactly hear yeah and it, listening to it i had two new thoughts one is that i think he's a really underrated singer He's like a limited type of singer, but it reminds me of like Matt from The National. I need my girl. Mm -hmm. Where it's this really particular kind of delivery that he just got really masterful at, maybe because he couldn't do anything else, but <laughs> sounds yeah. really good. Uh, the other thing I was thinking was melodically, I'm like talking about the Springsteen stuff with it, but it really does. It like fits in the pocket of that one part of Jungle Land, like that two chord thing, of, you know, like when the drums come in in that song. Yeah, I just you're you're right. You know what it is like. I think I was trying to answer the question musically, so I sounded smart, but it's a lot to do with the lyrics too. Like the dice was loaded from the start and I bet when you exploded into my heart, like I, even just now saying it, I got the chills. Like yeah, the I'm phrasing, crying. <laughs> we're all, everyone's crying. We're all crying here. Um, it's been a tough year. Yeah. And then like, I forget the movie song. Like, fuck you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm. just like fuck off. Like that's too mm. much for me to to deal with. <laughs> like it's, it's such yeah. a simple phrase, but it like, 
brings up everything where you're like, yeah, the movie song, like I was promised something. I was taught something as since I was a child that like, you'll get your love story. You'll, this is how it's going to happen. But like, that's not how it's going to happen. That's not how life is. Yeah. That's not how life is. I love this because you're doing exactly the, the thing with this music where it's like, you you end up creating so many connections in your head with it because the lyrics don't tell you a story and because like we were saying with Sultans of Swing, there's not like a beginning, middle, end, you know, so you're able to invent the story and connection to your own life. I mean, it's not a novel idea, but I think it's something that we're really good at and the music itself is so evocative that you kind of can't help. Like when I hear Wild West End, it's like, if someone was like, if one of my friends who writes songs was like, what do you think of this chorus where I say, walking through the wild west end walking with your wild best friend i'd be like oh that's really corny but something about <laughs> when he sings it i'm literally thinking about walking with my best friends and i'm like oh man that is nice like that is like a great day so, i don't know it's working it's, it transcends all the all the stuff that music critics are supposed to take issue with if you're sympathetic to it yeah and producer dylan makes a good point like a wild best friend is a really beautiful way to talk about your best friend, you know, with my wild yeah, best totally. friend. Like, it's like so, like you could feel the love in the like phrasing of it. Like you're, you so admire the wildness of your best friend. Yeah, this is okay. I'm, I'm getting it. It's clicking. Yeah. Great. Both producer Dylan and I, because we have worked together for too long and um, sadly for her, we started to think the same thoughts at the same time. Um, we're thinking while we were listening of, the connection to Taylor Swift and not only Ooh. because she also did a Romeo and Juliet type song love story you you, you all might know it that you classic but also like a reinterpretation but also there's i don't know there's something about i feel like she does a similar kind of storytelling maybe or like she's also not a particularly like strong singer but she makes it really work and like everyone loves the way she sings for exactly how she sings maybe the spareness yeah um that's like really like her medium is the same right it's like that sort of like twangy songs with lots of open space. Yeah. I mean, I think she also, like Knopfler, is a songwriter who loves filling space with, like, she's a, kind of like a percussive singer, too. Mm -hmm. You know, like, people throw rocks at things that shine. People throw rocks at things that shine. Like, really, like, kind of like, I don't know, there's like a, she's almost like writing, like, slogans or something, yeah. She puts too many words in the phrase almost in a way that like really works. And I feel like he kind of does that too, where it's like you wouldn't expect that many words to show up there. Yeah, wordy as hell. <laughs> you know what? We're riffing here. We're vibing. Uh -huh. um, okay. Now I'm just like imagining them in the studio, like f they're fighting and Mark Knopfler is like, I am making my goddamn music. And if yeah. you don't shut the fuck up and let me make my masterpiece here, shut up about the goddamn cheese cubes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like he powered on through and it don't hear one iota of it. It's almost like yeah. it was made in paradise. There you go. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Sam, I personally want to hear another song off this album because I already knew Romeo and Juliet, so I feel like that's cheating. So I want to like have another experience. And if you think it's going to be, 
you know, as revelatory for me. I'm scared I'm going to put one on. You're going to be like, actually, I was completely wrong. This is nothing like Taylor Swift. I hate it. (laughs) I hate it all. Actually, if you if you want to disabuse yourself of Romeo and Juliet love for that song, simply watch the music video. I've never seen the music video. Oh, babe, it's horrifying. It's like a horror movie. It's literally so fucking (laughs) bad. It's crazy. It's so 80s. First of all, it's like the if I couldn't have even imagined something more 80s, like the whole thing is like a geometric like maze made of like white (laughs) structures. And there's like Romeo is in no joke, a salmon colored pink pants with a matching shirt and Juliet Uh is wearing like the most insane eyeshadow and she's like up in this thing and when the dice roll they actually roll there's like a close-up of dice rolling during that thing and it has their faces on it and when he says exploding into your heart one of them explodes the die wow it explodes symbolic it's really (laughs) okay well not to jump on defending this band who I'm gonna be (laughs) defending for like two hours but I, I do think this is like very early days of MTV. Everyone's right. getting their footing in the medium. No one's coming out of it looking good, you know? All right. I think when people think of the 80s, they think of this. And I feel like some of it I can defend as like, you know, it's everything that goes out, like Bruce says, everything that dies someday comes back. It comes back in style. Right. But other things, it's sort of like, you know, they, it was just a bad idea or they let someone on MTV talk them into something. But yeah, this kind of does take away some of the poignancy of the song to see literal dice exploding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's hear one more song off of Making Movies. Yeah, I feel like Skate Away might be more apt to the conversation we're having. Here is Skate Away. Okay, that was Skate Away. I did enjoy that song. I had a nice time. Yeah, there's a lot of things I love about that song. Um, Like after the conversations we've had, I feel like lyrically it deals with kind of what we're talking about, like in the song, songs or movies, you know, it's like basically a song about someone listening to their headphones and like creating a world while they're skating around the city. And I feel like that's a nice connection to what I think works well about their own songs. Totally. I too am making movies on location, but I do not know what it means. Um, I really enjoyed that he made up words Shala Chalet so that it would rhyme um, with Skate Away. Uh-huh. When he could have simply gone, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah. It's got like some of the stuff from Wild West End where he's like laughing through certain phrases and almost sounds like he's making it up as he's going along does have a lightheartedness to it that I appreciate. You know what I think I'm noticing a lot about these songs is that the vocals are like almost like aggressively to the front of the mix. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like voice of God Mm -hmm. almost where I'm like, oh, like I feel like it's like the music is in the background and there's someone talking to me over a loudspeaker. But that's the singing. Yeah, well, I mean, that's like, I think we're getting into something that really defines 80s Dire Straits and why this band is so connected to the CD as a format mm-hmm. is it is so pristine in production, like in the sense of you are not listening to a live band playing. You are listening to something that was sound engineered and designed and digitally uh, whatever to make it the highest level of audio so you can put your headphones on and just like totally zone out 
which you know what the older i get is the more that's what i'm looking for in music so i i appreciate it but it's also total anathema to like punk and a lot of the other cool things happening at this time the punk new wave thing whatever wasn't the only thing that was going on in 77 anymore. there was lots of other things going on yeah sure Mm. And we were just another. We were just another part of that. And they only go more in that direction as they continue as a band. But yeah, that's because like you're hearing like Mark Knopfler in a vocal booth singing on top of it. I don't know if that's literally happening, but I imagine it is. Mm. It's this like perfected vocal take. Interesting. Love over gold. It's another transitional moment that I think I respect in theory, but I don't love as an album. And I know some people really love this album, but it's sort of like. Dire Straits completely indulging in the idea of creating these musical sort of like journeys. Like the songs are longer. The hooks aren't as plentiful. It's sort of like their version of kind of a prog album, you know, where it's just really ambitious and elaborate. And of course, it's not as commercially successful. And of course, it's not what their strong suit is. But, you know. Do you feel like they were like so successful then the record label was like here's a whole bunch of all the money you want and they were like okay we're gonna go jerk off with it like that <laughs> I, I don't think so yet I think it's probably the one in the 90s more okay <laughs> to me this one is more like you know like well what can we do after making movies like let's do something crazy ambitious you know like let's really earn our place in rock history and it doesn't totally pan out for me but you know Telegraph Road is a cool song the title track is really pretty too. It's definitely, it's a nice album, but. Why don't, don't we hear a song it. off of it? We have time. We should. Yeah. At the very least, let's let people hear that it's not as good as the other album. Um, yeah. We could go with the title track then. It's got a nice piano part. Okay. Yeah. We, we love a piano part. Um, let's hear Love Over Gold off of Love Over Okay. That was Love Over Gold. Here's what I'm going to say. Number one, yeah, yeah. it's giving me um, the Nagel ripoff art that is in beauty salons. It is giving me the piano players that used to be in the malls. That's 80s. If you weren't around, wow. you don't remember uh, that. It's giving yeah, that me, me Robert Downey Jr. movies. But also... Like once we got to verse two, I was like, okay, this is good. You could have just done this part. Mm. You didn't need all the other stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, <laughs> like, why I would agree. Did you... I would... Yeah. Not playing to their strengths, really. A little meandering. Yeah. Really cannot shake the image of the piano player in the mall, though. Dude, and it's not a good image for you? I mean, it's if you think about it, it's kind of dark and sad. Like, just like this person alone playing piano in the middle of the mall. <laughs> Mm. to answer your question it's not a good image for me it feels like Honestly, yeah suffocating it's like very like capitalism at its like worst and most flattening of like any idea and like here you can get all anything you need here at the mall we have a dillard's and a macy's well they didn't have macy's then it was called may company anyways who cares um, yeah i mean this we're really you're t- this is planting the seeds for what happens to Dire Straits as the 80s continue. And if you're already having those thoughts, I mean, just buckle up. But yeah, before we get to that, I thought um, I put uh, Joker Man by Bob Dylan as like a good segue between sort of making movies, the experimental love over gold, and then kind of like 
what uh, Mark Knopfler's influence on rock and pop music at the time is. So he produces this Dylan album that's like the comeback after Dylan's really um, uh, sort of controversial and then eventually just like ignored Christian era. And so this is like the effect when someone was like, I'm going to get Knopfler on my record. Like this is the effect he had. Yeah. Why don't we hear why don't we hear the Bob Dylan song? Okay, it's giving Margaritaville. It's giving PTSD because if you've dated any musicians, Bob Dylan in general gives you PTSD. Um, It's giving... Bob Dylan is not as good of a singer as Mark Knopfler, so trying to pull (laughs) off the same thing, it's not so much working. Yeah, Um, I'm really stoked that we've already established Dire Straits is greater than Bob Dylan over the course of this podcast. I feel like it's already a success for me on that alone. That's one read of (laughs) what's happened here. Um, (laughs) I'm not discounting all of Bob Dylan's catalog. I simply, that particular song is not for me. Yeah, Um, fair enough. Okay, Sam, we are entering deep 80s now. We're in the middle of the goddamn 80s. Yeah, we're deep in it. We are a piano player at the mall. We're all the piano player at the mall now. Yeah, it's funny. When you said that, I was like, that would be a good subject for a Mark Knopfler song. I'm surprised. Well, we don't, I don't think they have those in England. That's like a specifically American thing of like suburban malls having piano players in them. Oh. Um, Okay. Brothers in Arms comes out in 1985. Yossi is three. For those of you at home keeping score. Um, I have a note here that Brothers in Arms is one of the best-selling albums globally of all time. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I also have to point out, because producer Dylan did her legwork, that it sold 30 million copies. And other albums that have sold 30 million copies, which is not a lot, are Born to Run, Hotel California, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by a small band called The Beatles, many Michael Jackson records, and Nevermind by Nirvana. (laughs) We're back, baby. (laughs) We're back to Nevermind. Um, And also the Grease soundtrack, which totally makes sense to me. Um, Tell me about Brothers in Arms. Yeah, so an album that completely hits at the right time. It's an album that while they were making it, I think they decided to go with just like, the newest, hottest technology, and it's a time when CDs are starting to really catch on. So released on CD, it's a full digital recording, which is pretty novel at the time and makes it just sound so um, luxurious and so expensive and so regal that it kind of blows a lot of the major label rock music at the time out of the water. Um, It's one of those albums that's so insanely front-loaded not that I don't like the second half of it, but like tracks one through four are all, they all like sound like hits. The fifth song too sounds like a hit, but like that like initial run of songs, it's like a thriller type thing, a born in the USA type thing. It really is just one of those albums where it's like, at least for me, I listen to it and I'm like, oh, I can see why everyone wanted to have this in their homes or their cars or whatever. Um, yeah, the reason I wanted to, include Joker Man by Bob Dylan in the conversation aside from I'm, I love Dylan I love that song is because it shows the way that the things that 
Knopfler was doing had slowly become the mainstream, you know, where it was the sound of like radio aimed at adults, you know, people had like grown up with Bob Dylan and were now like, I want like a chiller, more contented Dylan, you know, it's music for like road trips. It's music for, you know, like running on a treadmill. It really is this, um, Mm -hmm. like, I think adult contemporaries, like, a term that's uh, really loaded and sounds yes. like an insult, mm-hmm. but um, this is like literal adult contemporary music for the eighties. And at the time that wasn't played out at the time that was like, if you were an adult, you know, it was what you, people were listening to. I imagine I was born, you know, in the nineties. So this okay, is all... Sam, <laughs> but you know what I'm, you know, what I mean? um, yeah, no, I, I hear trying you to paint a picture. I hear you. Um, adults who back then were considered 28-year-olds were considered adult people. Exactly. Were like, I'm tired of this damn racket. I need something yeah. soothing because I have to go to my finance job. And at night I am tired and I'm yeah. going to run on my treadmill listening to Dire Straits. Here's a question I can't believe I have not asked yet, even though it's been burning in my mind this whole time. But I had to Google because I'm not super good on dates. Steely Dan predates Dire Straits by like a full decade, right? Were they, they do, yeah. influences of Dire Straits? Because there's so many fucking parallels. Yeah, and you know, Knopfler plays on the last Steely Dan album from that. I didn't run know that. On, on Gaucho, he plays, I almost put that on the playlist because he plays the solo in the song Time Out of Mind. Mm. It's probably like the quintessential Knopfler solo. It's so melodic and so lyrical. Um, but yeah, I would say that they're definitely one of those bands when I'm, when we talk about like the ingredients that made Dire Straits a hit. One of the things I think is that they had that uh, Steely Dan um, perfectionism and studio musician finesse that by Brothers in Arms, I think most of the band is Sessions musicians. There's not an actual band who is Dire Straits making this record. It's just Mark Knopfler and his ego. Yeah. <laughs> and um, John Elsie, the bassist. Yeah. Sam, why wasn't Steely Dan adult contemporary music? Well, I mean, they were objectively. <laughs> yeah, um, that's what but I'm saying. So Steely Dan ends in 1980. Their right. last album comes out and they miss this whole moment that they influenced, you know, where bands are a lot... Um, Bands on the radio are a lot sleeker and being influenced by jazz isn't such an anomaly. Um, you know, I think if Steely Dan would have survived, they probably could have had their own brothers in arms, but, you know, they're probably, their legacy is probably better off that they didn't do it. Seems like they did fine. I mean, they didn't miss out on anything. They were huge, right? They made yeah, tons definitely of money. not. <laughs> they yeah. were on the radio. Nobody, they didn't yeah. miss it. Truly, they had their time in the sun, I think. Unequivocally a success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So from from pre, <laughs> pre-adult contemporary to um, full adult contemporary, um, to post-adult contemporary, which I don't know what that is actually, but I'm yeah. sure I could start riffing and naming some bands. Tame Impala probably yeah, sure. <laughs> falls into that category. Yeah. Stuff like that that is popular now, 
I don't think like you could ever get Tame Impala to say that they're like uh, inspired by Dire Straits or even the war on drugs. I'm just You know, a lot of mm-hmm. people say they sound like Dire Straits. I don't think they have ever cited them as an influence because I think it's almost like an accidental correlation where it's like the war on drugs are also really inspired by Springsteen and Pink Floyd, you know, and care a lot about equipment and mm-hmm. things like that, which go into fashion and go out of fashion and then come back. It's kind of like, you know, even someone like Antonoff again, like the idea of this guy who has like the signature thing that he brings to other people's recordings. Like, I don't know, that's it's kind of rooted in the 80s with a band like this. I'm going to be crucified for saying this, but like Tame Impala and The War on Drugs are two bands. I literally couldn't name you a song. I've, I'm sure I've heard them, but it's never gone into my consciousness. Right. And that's also what we were saying about Dire Straits, where I bet a lot of people at their shows in the 80s were like, play the one that goes like, you know it's like these aren't songs that are meant to lodge like a name in your head they're songs that like are meant to fill a space and meant to convey a feeling and when they're good they really do that just like david matthews band oh when you come Um, that's right. You heard me. That's right, Sam. I said it and I meant it. I meant every word. Yeah, great. I mean, yeah. Well, we were talking, <laughs> producer Dylan and I earlier, and I was roasting her, and she was trying to explain how much, why she loves Dire Straits. And she finally explained it to me in a way that I understood. And then I was like, oh, yeah, they're like Dave Matthews Band for you. And that's all I'll say about that. Well, now I'm really curious. Uh- Hey, you haven't spent any time with Dave Matthews Band. May I recommend Band's Plan episode, whatever it is on Dave Matthews Band? It's quite good. Oh, no, I'm familiar with David Matthews. I meant more, I'm curious what Dylan's um, explanation was. I think she was kind of like, this is like music for people who are tired of like, just tired. (laughs) And it's... (laughs) And it's like uncool, but it's like so soothing and emotional in its own way. I would argue that Dave Matthews band, I'm not going to say they're better or worse because that's not even, there's no apples and oranges, honestly, Um, but that they hit emotional highs and lows that are brought like on a larger scale than Dire Straits. I think Dire Straits kind of tightly controls the emotional manipulation they do through their music. It's there, but it's not like you know, the crashing symbols, like, which is like, you know, what Dave Matthews band traffics and it's like really going to make you fucking, you know, you're going to cry. Yeah. Oh, they also jam. And I feel like Dire Straits, that's not their vibe. Dire Straits is like, they've got like the boys of summer kind of like for, for rhythm. And Dave Matthews is all about like wacky, you know, kind of like. Yeah, one band is a cocaine band and one band is a psychedelics and weed band. And exactly. I'll leave it to you to decide which one's which. Yes, well put. We haven't talked about cocaine, which seems insane because it's A, it's the 80s. Yeah, yeah let's get into it. <laughs> I need to know, were Dire Straits an actual cocaine band? Like, are these are these lads partying? They look a little cokey, um, but who can tell? Everyone looked cokey back yeah, then. 
they sound cook. I mean, like when and when you listen to an album <laughs> like Brothers in Arms, it's kind of like I just imagine if it's not them, it's their engineers. Somebody's like behind the mix board, like no, turn the bass down, like turn turn it just a little bit down, and then turn the cymbal. You know, like it is that kind of like crazy, like you know. Um, I don't th- Dire Straits. There really isn't anything like that that I know of with them. Like you know, I think there was loads of money going around, so I'm sure they were partying. You know. But I mean, Steely Dan ended like Gaucho is like end of the road. Like the drugs aren't fun anymore. It's getting scary. We need to end this band because we have a problem. Right. My nose does not work anymore. There's holes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. The party, we have to leave. And so like Dire Straits, I think it's like they survive that moment. And when they end, I think it's a lot more of a like, yeah, well, people aren't into this anymore. I don't really feel like making this kind of music. Like, let's go our separate ways, you know. But like, Brothers in think... Arms were still in Cocaine Land. Yeah, or whatever. Deep... The vibe of Cocaine Land. I'm not saying that they're doing cocaine. I'm just saying spiritually. Yes, yeah, spiritual Cocaine Land. <laughs> Why don't we hear a song off Brothers in Arms? And then I want you to talk to me more about this album. Because this album uh, seems like the most important one, I guess, if we're talking about um, commercial success and also... Maybe you would agree, uh, piece de resistance. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> I'm so um, sorry for saying piece de resistance. No, it applies. Um, well, okay. should we start with uh, track one, So Far Away? Yes, we shall. This is So Far Away. So far away from me. So far I just can't see. Okay, that was So Far Away, um, Off Brothers in Arms. It's giving, I love Bruce Springsteen, but it's good. I liked it. Yeah. I enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you can already hear like a tightening up of the things we were talking about on making movies where it's a song that's basically, it just kind of cycles through these refrains over the same riff. And it's almost like a Grateful Dead type of thing where it just like, you get so hypnotized by Mm, like the mm -hmm. riff and the music and the way the band plays that slow. Sort of like crystal groove. I think for a lot of people that heard that and they were like, you know, this sounds like the present, like this sounds new, you know. That's interesting. It sounds really poppy compared to their other stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Like was that that was like a choice? They were like, okay, we're we're gonna just make pop songs or whatever, more pop-ish songs. Yeah, and I think it was also a reaction to the idea of the last album not necessarily being so successful artistically or commercially, where it's like that was kind of them trying the opposite thing where they lean into the artsier side and sort of explore what it would sound like if they cut down on the hooks and lean more into the sound design and the composition, which, you know, not the best. But Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) I think this comes a lot more naturally. Okay. All right. Um, I have like sort of like a zoom out question that was just like nagging at me. Um, Yeah. You kind of in the very beginning said something about these pub bands being a reaction to these other big bands in England. Which bands were you talking about? Are you talking like the Rolling Stones and like the Beatles, like those big bands? Yeah. And the ones, mainly the Stones, like bands who survived the 60s 
and into the 70s had sort of completely outgrown the place that they started from, had changed their style of music, had become celebrities. You know, because that was like, when that happened to the Rolling Stones, there really wasn't a precedent for like, you know, like, like them and the Beatles. It was kind of like this idea of like, to explode like that was new for a rock band, you know? Right. So this was sort of like the first reaction to that, like maybe like an early example of what like indie rock was in the nineties. But it's also like, maybe, I mean, the fact that Dire Straits particularly blew up when music videos became a vehicle for star power is, you know, then is especially ironic and might give insight into why their video was exploding dice and like, computerized (laughs) men carrying around microwaves you know yeah well sadly now that you've brought it into the you brought it into the episode where and i know we're gonna have to talk about it we have to talk about money for nothing we have to yeah we gotta (sighs) let's hear it and then we'll talk about it (laughs) yeah a pop-up video classic this one oh my god pop-up video for sure okay here is money for nothing Okay, that was Money for Nothing. Yeah. The song is challenging for me on many levels. Yeah. We should mention that that's Sting um, singing in his uh, signature falsetto, I Want My MTV, so many times. Too many times, one might argue. Definitely something that got edited down. Um, Also, a fun fact is like this album is an early example of what would come to be called CD bloat, where the fact that you could fit way more music Mm. on a CD than a record meant everyone was... It's like why in the 90s, every album's like 19 songs long. But in this case, it just meant that every song on this was like seven minutes and like full of like fade outs and excess uh, riffing and vamping. Yeah, Boundaries are good. Yeah. (laughs) They do a good thing. Um, Okay. I just find the backstory of this song like LOL hilarious. I'll read you a quote. This is one of the funniest parts I find is... um, Mark Knopfler describing writing the song. And he says, the lead character in Money for Nothing is a guy who works in the hardware department in a television slash custom kitchen slash refrigerator slash microwave appliance store. He's singing the song. I wrote the song when I was actually in the store. I borrowed a bit of paper and started to write the song down in the store. I wanted to use a lot of the language that the real guy actually used when I heard him because it was more real. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love him talking about like the lead character in the song. Like he's like a playwright. Like, yeah, it's like. <laughs> don't you love that character from the song Money for Nothing? I relate yeah. to him. <laughs> um, they, this was like, this was like a protest against MTV song. Like what, what's happening here? Yeah. I mean, what I know of it is, yeah, it's like the idea is he's singing about, um, he's from like singing from the perspective of like this like bitter working class guy like watching tv he's like you know like i wish i could be on tv like them they don't actually have to work and they got girls all around them and they're making all this money and then yeah the music is like this kind of zz top chugging riff filtered through nafo vision actually i I do i like this song but i can (laughs) understand why people don't okay that's okay we can agree to disagree yeah what don't you like about it Everything start to finish, yeah. top to bottom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't excuse the homophobic slur in the last Yeah, verse. I mean, that for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Egregious. And 
honestly, the rest of it egregious. It's it's like uh-huh. I think maybe, and this is like, I'm not saying it's a bad song. I'm just saying I don't like it. It just might be so 80s. Whereas like, yeah. it like triples down on being 80s and like in the subject matter, in the like name checking of like now common household appliances of the 80s that were considered very luxurious. It's just like, whew. Yeah. It's, a lot. it's definitely not subtle. <laughs> it's definitely not the kind of thing I would point to as being like, oh, you know, like, like if you're going to listen to Dire Straits, check out this great song called Money for Nothing. But right. I mean, it gets the job done. It sounds like you hit. What's the job? <laughs> it's getting done. I'm so curious. Yeah, I, it's like in the studio when he came up with that riff, it was probably like, oh, you know, if I wanted to, I could turn this into a hit song. And he did it. You know, it's like it's like it's packed with hooks. It's um, so tightly constructed, minus the meandering ambient intro that goes on for like two minutes. Um, You know, like when you see him live and the band's like kind of riding that groove, you're like, yeah, you know what? If this wasn't a mega hit with like an iconic 80s video, maybe I would hear this song and be like, oh, that's a cool song. Kind of like Wild West End where I'm like, you know, that that's like a vibe. but. I yeah, I don't blame anyone who's like I never want to hear this song again. Personally, I can't remember. I probably haven't chosen to listen to this song in my entire adult life, but it's there. But yeah, and you it's, love it. <laughs> well, I I don't love. I mean, it's like I like a lot of huge popular artists. Like I'm not the kind of listener who's like when a band gets famous or has a hit, I right. turn my back. It's okay. like I will accept it. Most bands I love have. Most bands like have a song that's like so big and that caught the attention of so many people who aren't fans that as a fan, like with Springsteen Glory Days is that song for me where like I never choose to listen to Glory Days, um, you know, out of the context of the record. When he plays it live, I'm never like, yes, like it's Glory Days. This song is worse than Glory Days, but it's in a similar spot where I'm like, if I could time travel and like go into the studio and like, cut it from the record I would absolutely not I think it's a great track too on Brothers in Arms um have you heard the version that they did on television's um Empire no I feel that it is my comeuppance on producer Dylan and I'm sorry that the rest of you are collateral damage we got the movie refrigerator we got the movies color TV So that's a thing that exists. Yes, powerful. <laughs> it's gripping. It's gripping. <laughs> you know what they say? It's not where you take it from; it's where you take it to. I think exactly. Jim Jarmusch said that. So you're saying that song kind of that transformed your relationship with it and made you appreciate it in a different way? Yeah, that's if that's one way to look at what I <laughs> I'm saying. <laughs> I just outed myself though as someone who like watched Empire. So that made me want to watch it. <laughs> Everybody loses here. Yes. Um is there a good song on this record? Uh, I think there's plenty of good songs. <laughs> I mean I, <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the whole side A is like it's one of those records where every song is an attempt at like a big hit or like the song that will make someone a fan. Uh for better or worse. For me it really works. It's almost like this mini greatest hits package um 
So yeah, I feel like we've made it through two of the big ones. Uh, oh, right. I forgot. It's My mind is so feeble. I forgot that So Far Away just was played just mere moments ago, and I deeply enjoyed it. Oh, yes. But th- that's how much um, Money for Nothing made me black out. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on the song Your Latest Trick, which is probably my favorite song on the record, but it's divisive. Well, you're in luck. You will be able to hear my thoughts shortly after we play Your Latest Trick. Here it is. But all I can do is hand it to you and your latest trick. Okay, that was... Your latest trick. It's giving dimly lit uh, back alley. It is giving a woman with a swoop of hair across her eye. It is giving you are on hold with Bank of America (laughs) and we will be with you shortly. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. It sounds like Kenny G. It really is that (laughs) smooth jazz thing that really terrorized so many of us for a while. But it really works for me in that song. Does that give you the same feeling that like a bad Kenny G song would give you? I, j- I just want to clarify. This is your favorite song on the album. I do. I love this song. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me what you like about it so that maybe, again, my feeble mind could possibly um, <laughs> hope to understand more? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think the sax line is iconic. Mm-hmm. It's just like one of those things you hear once and then it's just in your head as like a melody. I think it's beautiful. Um, I think the lyrics in this song are probably some of my favorite Nofflu lyrics. And I think his delivery is amazing. I love when he says, you played robbery with insolence and I played the blues in 12 bars down in Lover's Lane. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of the thing I was talking about with Steely Dan too, where it's like, yeah, the music is really lush and really smooth and almost like nauseatingly, like there's no hard edges or tension. But it does that with these lyrics that are so much about decay and so much about like this, like these characters, the city's like all torn down, everything's falling apart. Everyone seems kind of past their prime. People are doing things behind closed doors. There's like huge garbage trucks everywhere. It's like almost apocalyptic to me. And I'm just a sucker for like dark apocalyptic imagery with really beautiful, almost like confrontationally ignorable music. Like it's so pretty and it's so um, pristine. I don't know. It's just it's like a perfect combination to me. You said confrontationally ignorable. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like the reason it sounds like hold music is they put you on hold and they give you that with the hopes that like you'll forget that you're on hold. You know, it just sort of like puts you in a trance. Like that's the mm-hmm. purpose of it. And that's yeah. um, I think it's Michael Brecker doing that line. And he's, you know, he's a pretty great, uh, great player and it really evocative to me in that in that song. You know, it's for me, it's evoking like a private eye office or something. Mm. Yeah, well, I think the song was used um, for uh, like a show about um, some sort of intrigue. My mind. (laughs) Um, I am interested in how often Mark Knopfler evokes um, working girls. Yes. uh, Whilst... Uh, talking about a woman who wronged him. Mm. (laughs) Like, 
it, perhaps uh, sort of subtly conflating the two or wanting people to conflate the two. Uh, that's a move. That's a move on Mark Knopfler's part. He's like, yeah. I'm just going to talk about some night whores. And then also <laughs> this lady who fucking broke my heart with her latest trick. Yeah, I, like, I mean, oh, it's the pun there is oppressive. Yeah. It's definitely a trope and it's definitely like he's going for like a noir thing of like a guy who's asking for it, you know, to be sort of like swindled. Like I always sort of see a kind of like masochism in his songs, but I think he's he's really into like writing from the perspective of someone who's really beaten down and is like maybe looking for a scenario that's going to get them even further in the hole than they are. And that's not a pun. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, this is not my favorite song no. <laughs> I've ever heard, but I hear you, you know? I'm not here to dismiss your opinions. I'm simply along for the ride. Also, again, as someone who was barely cognizant in the 80s, I feel like you don't have maybe a, the PTSD around the 80s that I do, and that might be informing a lot of my reactions here. Yeah, I think I think I'm like sympathetic to the kind of juxtaposition of like sounds that are supposed to evoke something like um kind of like capitalist or whatever. Like I think mm-hmm. um Destroyer is a band who does that really mm-hmm. well. Wasting your days chasing some girls or chasing cocaine. Mm-hmm. Like all the songs on Kaput sound mm-hmm. kind of like the whole music thing we're talking about, but at the same time, they're really beautiful. And then the lyrics are taking on these dark end of the world type images. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm always listening for that kind of thing. This CD was the first CD to sell one million copies. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. That's what I have to bring to the conversation. Um, it was huge is what I'm saying. We've already said yes. that. Yeah. Um, I think we cannot move on, though, until we play Walk of Life, which is a song that I did not realize was Dire Straits, nor did I realize that I knew, but I did know it. Um, This is Walk of Life. Okay, that was Walk of Life. Sam, what in the fucking tarnation is going on here? (laughs) Uh, I mean... Yeah, you you were saying how it's like you've heard that song a million times, baseball games, Oregon, um, and not and having not known it's Dire Straits. And the thing is, there's so many songs that live in the same world as this one. You know, yeah, this is like John Cougar, Mellencamp, Core. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> Let My Love Open the Door by Pete Townsend. Let my love open the door. It's Centerfold by the Jay Giles Band. Sure. Yep. There's a little bit of Glory Days by Springsteen. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of old time rock and roll, Bob Seger. It's like a type of song, which is like this kind of like old school. Like he's singing about old school rock music. He's kind of like one thing. I feel like listening to these songs, like in the context of discussing Dire Straits, is like. Their songs really are like an idea in the verse, an idea in the chorus, and it really just cycles back and forth with like this groove in the hopes that you'll sink into the groove. And I think in this song, this is not my favorite Dire Straits song, but I do think in some ways it's undeniable. I think in this one, it's just like 
this kind of like 80s old time rock that doesn't really sound like old time rock music, but gives enough old time rock music. Do you remember when rock was young? Me and Judy used to have so much fun. (laughs) That's like my least favorite song ever, Crocodile Rock. And this is not far from it. But I don't know. Again, what saves it for me is just like this pristine production, this presentation of it. I find it really immersive and like crystal clear in a way that like, I mean, no shade to the Jay Giles band who did it. You know, they did their thing. But it's like if Mm -hmm. you listen to Centerfold now... To me, that maybe sounds more like, you know, like a a relic than Brothers in Arms sounds like to me, where it's just this really like huge leap forward sonically in a way that a lot of comparable records weren't at the time. What you're saying all makes sense. But what I don't understand is why <laughs> they would write this song. <laughs> but do you know, I'm yeah, serious. No, like, totally. what is trying to be expressed here? Was it yeah. just like a like... Or are they taking the piss or is it like an earnest expression of like the love of Americana? Like mm. what's happening? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people who Dire Straits sound like and are compared to and that like Mark Knopfler works with, like someone like Dylan, it's kind of like you don't listen to a Dire Straits record and like get to the heart of an issue. Like it's not about <laughs> the lyrics, you know. So it's kind of like, I feel like I heard him say Dubapalua like five times, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. almost like there's like certain phrases he goes back and forth with that, like almost like an electronic artist where it's like samples come up for like the texture to like give you an image less so than like, you know what, I need to write a song about how we're all doing the walk of life and how rock music was better in the fifties. Like, I don't think, I don't think there's like an earnest message here in the song that like, you know, could be expressed in like an essay or something. I think the idea is like, <laughs> like, I think it's like, there's like, they wanted a groove like this. He was like probably playing that like guitar part. And then like the synth came on. It's just like, it's undeniable. Like if you're in the mood for that kind of thing, you know, like you're in an arena, that line comes in, you put your beer in the air, you know. It's confrontationally uh, <laughs> catchy. Oh. Um, I guess... What maybe what I'm hearing you say and what mm. I'm starting to glean, whatever six albums in that we are now, is that this is not a man who's writing songs about and really things. He it's it, he's writing songs in service of a sound that he wants to create, and he he's writing songs in service of the music he wants to write. But he's maybe not necessarily seeking the kind of self expression that I tend to like in music yeah i think that's fair although there are a few songs like i think your latest trick like lyrically is impressive to me and then later (laughs) like on his solo albums there's songs that i think are really like great storytelling but i do think at the time dire straits and we'll see where this fails then but it's like i think dire straits was almost like a machine like the sound of the music was so crucial to the story they were telling. Mm -hmm. And you can't really separate the two where it's like, you know, we listen to So Far Away and it's sort of like, you know, I feel like something I've heard you say when their songs are, it's like, I get the gist because it's true. It does like sort of cycle through this one thing and then another thing. And then it ends with this long sort of like immersion into the groove. But it's sort of like, you can't really play these songs on just an acoustic guitar. Money for Nothing would be 
a completely di- you like you wouldn't recognize it. Well, thank God. Imagine the legions <laughs> of men that would be showing up to parties and being like, anyway, here's money for nothing. Uh-huh. I think that also is part of their legacy with bands being like, you know, I can with the technology that was happening in the 80s in terms of production, it was like, you know, Pink Floyd was doing it before them and Steely Dan a little bit. But it was like, I can make a rock record that, you know, is more than just the songs I'm writing and the sound of my band. I can really like tweak it to become something bigger, which I, you know, I associate with pop music and electronic mm-hmm. music. But to me, Dire Straits is sort of like a middle ground between rock music as it was in the 70s and then some of the more um, uh, technologically in- intricate stuff that would happen in the 90s, maybe. Like what? Um, well, I'm thinking of like nine inch nails. <laughs> well, maybe not that intense, but you know, stuff like artists like David Bowie, like doing like break beats on Earthling and stuff. Mm. Like, you know, I don't think he was thinking of Dire Straits, but I do think they were like trying to navigate this middle ground of rock music that was so pristine and that was so suited for like home stereos and car stereos and, you know, videos where you're in this futuristic landscape like that kind of thing even the cover of this record like that guitar like flying through the sky you know there's like this <laughs> it's like not psychedelic but it's kind of it's something else you know it it's like guitar flying through the sky yeah that's so like bright and yeah that's kind of the vibe mm-hmm. but i do think there is that thing in the 80s of like you know you see some artists who are really good at it um, you know, I think Tom Petty was really good in the 80s with yeah. videos and incorporating synths. You and then you have artists who struggle with it a little more like Dylan. Like, mm. he, you know, is probably his like best move in the 80s was getting Knopfler to work on a record with him. The Margaritaville song. but yeah i think mark knopfler like you might disagree but he definitely didn't embarrass himself i kind of think like in the 80s he was more suited to the 80s than he was to the 70s in a lot of ways yeah i think that's true i I would agree based on what i've learned today um okay this album won two grammy awards yeah so they're like riding high they're on top of the world yeah this album basically is like their legacy you know they like the tour is enormous like people are going nuts they're playing huge huge crowds the the songs are huge like uh money for nothing walk of life really big singles and i think what happens to them is they spend too long between this album and the next one and their moment like totally kind of fades um because it is like the type of thing where I wonder if they had capitalized on that. And I think they put a live album out after this, but like, I don't know. It's almost like it's the thing where a band so perfectly speaks to the moment or finds such a strong foothold in the radio or whatever. And it's just like, it cannot last. And that's pretty much what happens to them and sort of ends the band. So they broke up. They do break up. Yeah. I see here in my notes that Mark Knopfler uh, starts a country band called Nodding Hillbillies. Yes. Nothing I can say 
You do what you want to go your own sweet way. That's a horrifying pun. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't. Oh yeah, Notting Hill. I just mm. got that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. He's also doing some scores, which I think are probably what he's becoming known for around that time. Like he does um, Princess Bride, right? Oh, great movie! I did not know he did the score for that. This did happen once upon a time. But you know what? Alarmingly, I can't remember one fucking thing about the score of that movie, so maybe he did do it. (laughs) Yeah. Producer Dylan has brought up a point that she says, um, society had progressed past the need for dire straits and they knew it and that's why they broke up. Do you think that is accurate? Yeah, I do. I mean, (laughs) like... The need for dire straits makes me imagine like, <laughs> you know, like a storefront of people like, please, like my children, they need it. Um, <laughs> my family I think, is dying for uh, dire straits, please. <laughs> I mean, like, look, the radio is really unforgiving. And this was an album that did numbers on the radio. And like the very fickle CD buying public of the 80s went nuts for it. And it's kind of like an elusive thing when you're, you know, a rock band, but also like the kind of rock band Dire Straits was where they were so sort of under, like personally, like there's no personalities in it to really affix your attention mm-hmm. to. They didn't have a Bono. Mm-mm. Also, there's a lot of music that kind of sounds like Dire Straits. There's a lot of copycats. There's a lot of music that Knopfler himself is producing. I don't know if it becomes um, overexposed, but it is sort of like, you know, hearing a song with like a dubstep drop in it in 2015, you're like, like oh my god like i never want to hear this again so yeah and then also like i think music is like you're like i mean i think you kind of started to say this music is is shifting right like yes rock is shifting um i don't know why i ended up in 1987 which is two years after that but it's only two years the number one album of the year was slippery when wet by bon jovi you know exactly yeah which (laughs) makes something like brothers in arms sound pretty corny or like pretty soft you know yeah and license to ill was number three so it's like we're really like starting to uh get into different territories and you mentioned bono i think joshua tree came out in 1987 too but yeah yeah, like it's we are uh we're gliding past that that uh kind of music yeah and i mean the time off they take is pretty severe like i think it's six years between records and by the early 90s i'm kind of like any band who was around in the 70s seems ancient, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you're doing something like, and some artists were able to really navigate that, like Joni, you know, sort of found this sure. new uh, generation of influences and sort of used that to pare her music down and make a comeback. And Neil Young with grunge became a different kind of uh, figure, elder statesman, but. You know, in like 1991, there's probably not a lot of bands who are like, Mark Knopfler's the goat. Like, if, like, let's get him to work with us. You know, it's kind of like, it's the sound of radio from six years ago. Mm, Harsh. Life comes at you fast. It does. I love that we've ended on this point where it's like, you're not convinced, but there's something you found in it that you love and you can apply to your, your daily life. I think that's like, I think that's great. And I also think Dire Straits is not my favorite band. Like if if I... Sure fooled me. Well, so (laughs) Dire Straits is almost like 
minor by choice, you know, Mm. at every moment when they could have become the biggest band in the world, they did something to slightly subvert it, whether it was not appearing on their album covers, whether it was ending making movies with that song, Les Boys, which is a pretty (laughs) bad song. And like, almost like a, an intentionally jokey song, you know, making an album like Brothers in Arms that really catches on and finds an audience and then disappearing for five years. And so I think that their legacy isn't so much that, you know, like every few years there's going to be a revival, like, you know, Fleetwood Mac or whatever, Steely Dan are always going to be attracting new fans. To me, Dire Straits is the kind of band where yeah, it, their legacy is stuff like you're saying, where it's like, oh, I didn't know they had that song. Or then hearing a different song and being like, whoa, like that's actually pretty awesome. And I think that's cool. I like bands that make you dig around for your own meaning and dig around to build your own canon out of it. And I think that's um, the fact that Knopfler keeps going, like you said, and is writing songs that I think are different for him and challenging for him and uh, beautiful in different ways than Dire Straits. It makes him a. Uh, I don't know, he's like a rare artist who I think has aged really, really gratefully from his classic rock beginnings. I had, I had another epiphany just now. Again, as we say on Bands Playing, I do not pretend to know the hearts and minds of uh, Mark Knopfler or the rest of his Dire Straits bandmates. But it, you get the sense that it's like a bit guileless, right? It's like even just the way of making the music in service of just the music, like it just seems like he just wanted to make music and he was like, I like making music. I'm going to keep making the kinds of songs that I like because I like to hear these things. And like, it was awesome to be famous. Well, not famous. It was awesome to be popular because they were able to make a living and like make money. And I don't know if being famous was obviously on the agenda because they didn't put their faces out there. They didn't care about that. And the fact that he's still, just making music like kind of proves that point back where it's like oh it was kind of always just about this and there's something like really pure and like beautiful about that you know well yeah i mean it would be so easy for them to reunite and just collect that check even just for like a show or a tour or a festival date and they really they don't um even though the music he's writing all these songs probably could be put out under the dire straits banner and probably get a lot more attention uh even that box set that like they put this box set out last year that was literally just the albums in a box that said Dire Straits on the front. There's no liner notes, no essay by a musician or critic explaining everything. It's really just like, you know, it's a good metaphor for letting the music do the talking, which I think yeah. is always their MO. We talk all the time here about bands that um, could have stopped at a certain point. Um, yeah and would have preserved their legacies in different ways. And often, obviously, they don't. Um, Here's one rare occasion (laughs) where uh, willingly they probably stopped at the right time. Yeah. Well, Sam, it's time Mm. for other fans and their thoughts and feelings. Are you ready for that? Yeah. Uh, Do I get to hear them? Yeah. What do you think they're going to (laughs) say? I don't know. I'm excited to hear it. I I like hearing people talk about this band. Okay. Take it away. What do I like about Dire Straits? I think that it's like white boy, desert reggae, done by British people. Dire Straits. So I was 15 years old and I was living in one of those ex-bourgeois home, full levels, bunch of artists living there and rehearsing and doing all kinds of stuff. And all of a sudden I hear the sound on the top floor 
and I rush up the stairs and I bang on the door and I go, there was these two super cool, super old, they were 25. And uh, I said, Sabine, can I just sit there in the corner and, and listen to this? And she goes, yeah, sure. And th this was the first album. This was Dire Straits. Like a lot of people, I got into Dire Straits around the time when Bruce Springsteen was becoming a pop phenomenon in the 1980s. Uh, when you heard the album making movies in particular, it seemed to exist as an extension of the Bruce Springsteen world. Uh, the defining characteristic of you know, what makes Dire Straits, you know, uh, so great is Mark Knopfler, is that guitar playing. Mark Knopfler is just sentimental in a way that's sincere, but doesn't really get cloying, like even down to his guitar tone. His style is like, it's smooth and deadly, kind of like a mongoose attacking a cobra. And he's got a voice of like a more trustworthy Bob Dylan. When he worked with Dylan, it kind of rubbed off on Dylan, and then Dylan started imitating Mark Knopfler's Bob Dylan impression. I remember staring at the turntable and, and the um, backlight or whatever LP turning and just being mesmerized. I mean, this was such a new sound. It, it, it made me really want to go explore the world because this came from elsewhere. That steel guitar part is just so pretty and buoyant, and the whole thing just kind of has this gentle sense of hope and possibility. Especially the way he plays without a pick, and you know, he's finger picking these lead patterns throughout. It's just, there's so much opportunity for personality when you play like that. That kind of Chet Atkins twang to it, so his, his guitar cut through the arrangement, and he had a very uh, narrative approach to the guitar solo. He structured his solos so that they built and twisted and go in all these different directions. You hear that Mark Knopfler strat tone and you just, you know, you know that thing anywhere. Um, and it's really kind of the backbone of everything that makes Dire Straits, Dire Straits. There's just something about Mark Knopfler that I find so charming, even down to this extremely polite and kind of funny record he did with Chet Atkins in 1990 called Neck in Neck. No, or not dissimilar to other records of the time, but the guitar playing is so different. He told a great story with the song itself, but his guitar part was like a character in the story, commenting on the action. Their um, MTV image, which is like some kind of middle-aged, perverted tennis player dads, doesn't really represent the sensitive songwriting that's on the rest of their discography. Think of like a song like Wild West End on the self-titled album where the guitar is kind of flittering in and out after every single vocal phrase. It's like this whole other secondary character in the song, but it never like demands your attention like a classic rock riff. It's kind of just like playing its role. And that's what I love in guitar playing. Like he's so clearly a virtuoso, but doesn't feel the need to let you know that with every phrase. I just wish we could hang out and talk about skiffle music or something. Wow. Okay. We hit the trifecta, folks. Mark Knopfler Strat Tone slash Virtuoso, um, French guy, and man who sounds just like Sam, um, who then made Sam laugh several times. <laughs> yeah. I, wow. That, that, that was so moving. I want a copy of that to be played at my funeral or something. <laughs> Did you feel amongst your people? 
I did. I feel like after hearing that, I'm like, oh yeah, I should have talked more about his actual solo and um, no no that's okay <laughs> so, all right you got another hour but yeah no that that really nailed it that was beautiful who's the british guy he's uh french and he is uh, uh, producer dylan's landlord oh <laughs> i'm like wow he's a great music critic i was like <laughs> yeah he was he really i really enjoyed his uh vague europeanness because again i think that's crucial in the dire straits fandom yeah also i didn't mention anything about the way they dressed the perverted tennis player thing is spot on the headbands the polos that was really the look yeah and the hair and the hair hair yeah that hair there's a lot going on um Mm -hmm. yeah american apparel core before american apparel existed (laughs) um okay sam well sadly we have reached the end um of our walk of life. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed this time with you, my new wild best friend, um, but it has come to a close. Yes. Let's say goodbye. But before we do that, you have to pick one last song to leave the people with. Let's do Why Worry? Because I was just listening to it before I came on because I was really stressed out and I just threw that shit on and let it let it run. You let it just wash right over you. The yeah. soothing the dulcet tones of Dire Straits and Mark Knopfler's Strat sound. That's right. Sam, thank you so much again. Thanks so much for having me. Come back every Thursday for a new episode of Bandsplain. And here is Why Worry by Dire Straits. So If you liked what you heard today, subscribe for more episodes of Bandsplain only on Spotify. Our guest today was Sam Sadomsky. Follow him on Twitter at S-S-O-D-O-M-S-K-Y and check out his podcast, Late Era. Huge thanks to the Dire Straits mega fans you heard on this episode. Allison Hussey, Dan Kanishkawi, Mark Richardson, Alain Betrancourt, Ben Roth, Mir Levine, and S.J. Jansen. Bandsplain is a Spotify original show. This episode was produced by the saxophone to my smooth jazz, producer Dylan, a.k.a. Dylan Tupper Rupert, and edited by Michael Hardman with help from Casey Simonson and Tari Miller. Executive producers for Bandsplain are Gina Delbeck and me, Yossi Salek. Our gorgeous and catchy theme song was composed and performed by Bethany Cosentino and Jennifer Clavin and graciously recorded by Carlos de la Garza in Los Angeles, California. Special thanks to Felipe Guillermino, Robert Adler, Leah Edwards, David McDonough, Dana Meyerson, Jessica Hopper, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Come back every Thursday for a new episode of Bandsplain, only on Spotify. Literally can't take anymore.